So it is 4.40, and for those of you who were, went to the 7 o'clock lecture, strong work that you're still here. Uh, and uh, so a little bit about me. So, uh, so I'm a gynecologist. I work at St. Joseph Hospital and Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and my practice is dedicated towards treating women with chronic pelvic pain. About 90% of my practice is women with chronic pelvic pain. The other 10% is, is uh, evalu um, referred for surgery. So uh, I don't have any disclosures. Uh, what we're going to learn today is identify peripheral nerve injuries that may cause uh, pelvic pain and kind of discuss some strategies uh, for diagnosis and treatment of specific peripheral nerves. And this is the outline here. So one of the first general principles, I think, when you're trying to figure out, does this person with pelvic pain, could this person have neuropathic or uh, pain related to peripheral nerve injury, is to recognize um, that type of pain. And so this is a drawing here of the pelvis, and there's a lot of different peripheral nerves that actually innervate the pelvis. We kind of all learned about, like, oh, it's just really S2, S3, S4. Well, no, not really. There's many other nerves that go into the pelvis, the ilinguinal, the hypogastric, the obturator, the posterior femoral cutaneous, the pudendal. And so my goal is for those nerves to all become common words for you guys by the end of this lecture. Uh, there is, uh, no one really knows the incidence of neuropathic pelvic pain. Uh, some people, uh, one study said it was about 6% of all chronic pelvic pain. It's very difficult to quantify. Uh, in my practice, I end up seeing a lot of patients with neuropathic pelvic pain, so it ends up being more like 20 to 25% of my practice, uh, but that's way uh, too many. So what does it feel like when uh, someone has it? No. So uh, the quality of the pain of, of pelvic neuropathic pain should be, could be either dysesthetic pain or nerve trunk pain. And I like to kind of make the, uh, the demonstration that you can actually induce both of these pains in yourself if you want to uh, by squeezing the medial part of your elbow over the ulnar nerve. And if you press on it hard enough, which I don't suggest you guys do, but if you press on it hard enough, you'll feel two things. Uh, one is that you'll feel a sharp stabbing pain right in the area of compression of the nerve, which will be the nerve trunk pain. And the other one is you feel the nerve pain distribution of the ulnar nerve extending to your pinky and your uh, ring finger, uh, and that should be a kind of a more of a burning or searing pain. And that's the type of pain that you would look for in someone with pelvic pain from neuropathic. The other kind of clue you get is um, inciting event. So what event might have led to uh, them developing this pain. And that's one of the biggest questions I ask these patients. I ask, okay, so what is it that started your pain? So for instance, I had this patient that was referred to me for endometriosis. She's been having pelvic pain for, for about three years, and her doctor said it was endometriosis, so she came to see me and I asked her, so how did your pain start? And she said it started after a zipline accident. Doesn't really sound like it's uh, endometriosis. So blunt trauma can be a cause of it. Uh, we might see obstetrical trauma as being a cause of it. He was once a baby. And then uh, surgery. You know, surgery is actually one of the biggest causes, I think, of uh, neuropathic injury in the pelvis. And unfortunately, gynecologists are the biggest culprit for that. Uh, when we talk also about kind of the mechanism of injury, so it could be something that is like an acute direct trauma, like surgery, but sometimes you can have repetitive uh, injuries that may cause it, or even dynamic forces in the pelvis, which if you guys came to the lecture for um, sexual dysfunction, you learned about the pelvic floor muscles. Uh, and so this is an example of a repetitive low-impact activity, so cycling. 
So if you're cycling, mountain biking, Phoenix is really big about mountain biking, you're going down the mountain, you're putting a lot of strain in your wrist, and over time you may develop an ulnar neuropathy. Uh, you're also putting a lot of strain in your butt uh, with a small seat pushing up against the perineum, which then could put pressure on your pudendal nerve. Uh, and I don't know how many cyclists there are here, but sometimes you hear cyclists feeling uh, numbness in their penis or in their vagina after cycling for so long, and that's because of, in, of compression to the pudendal nerve. There's also dynamic factors like the piriformis muscle in relation to the, pudendal, uh, to the sciatic nerve or um, the pudendal nerve, uh, which is a nerve coming from S2, S3, S4 uh, that is uh, within the sheath of the obturator internus muscle. So if there is any dysfunction like obturator internus muscle syndrome, uh, there may be also neuropathy of, or neuralgia of the pudendal nerve. So if you have this patient, you know, she has sharp stabbing pain in the area, uh, you think it might be a nerve-related. The most important thing to do is to rule out some other causes of pelvic pain. This, this talk really is geared just towards nerve, but I want to make sure you guys know there's maybe other reasons to have pain. Uh, and so uh, some uh, patients may have uh, referred pain from different visceral structures that we refer to a specific dermatome. We'll go over that as dermatome of a particular nerve, like the iliaminal genitofemoral nerve. And so here, like in this example, um, if maybe there's a pathology of the uh, fundus of the uterus that may lead to a genitofemoral uh, neuralgia. Um, also, if uh, someone has abdominal wall pain and you think, well, maybe this is ilioinguinal or maybe iliohypogastric nerves involved in this, uh, sometimes there may be other things underlying. Uh, like this is a patient that was referred to me for um, possibly having ilioinguinal nerve injury. And I got an MRI and she ended up having an abdominal wall endometriosis. Uh, and it was really not anything to do with her nerves at all. So the other, other uh, thing is once you think that this patient has a neuropathic type of pain, then you want to identify what type of nerve it is. And so uh, one of the best ways of doing that is to kind of see whether that nerve is spread or whether their pain is corresponds to a particular dermatome from that nerve. And so this, uh, you can get these from netters or anywhere on the internet. This kind of shows that this is the iliohypogastric uh, nerve, ilioinguinal nerve, uh, genitofemoral nerve, and obturator nerve, and lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. So if their pain is in somewhere in this area, you may suspect that maybe one of these nerves are involved. Um, also, there is a lot of different nerve distribution in the, in the pelvic exam. So if someone presents with vulvar pain, which we like to call vulvodynia, um, it may not be an actual thing wrong in the vagina. It might actually be a nerve uh, injury that might have happened. And so we think about maybe it just being S2, S3, S4 in the perineum and the vagina and, and rectum, uh, but there's many other nerves in this area. And I can make you guys guess, but I'll just go through it. So A is genitofemoral nerve. B would be the operator nerve. C is the inferior clunial. D is the posterior femoral cutaneous. E is the ilioinguinal. And then finally, F, kind of all areas, the pudendal nerve. And so when I see patients who uh, may have pain in their right uh, labia magus, that is, sounds like neuropathic pain, I don't just think that it might be pudendal nerve. I have to think about could it be something wrong with their ilioinguinal, genitofemoral nerve, or other nerves in this area, because they all uh, overlap. Uh, on physical exam, 
the, I like to uh, uh, demonstrate allodynia on my exams. So this is someone who has um, ilioinguinal uh, neuralgia. And so I'm just stroking with a cotton swab. And anytime they may feel that they're having a pain sensation, they may uh, flinch. Or they may feel like they're going from a soft to a more sharp sensation on the Q-tip. And then you can map out the area where there's different, uh, where there's uh, allodynia. That can be done in the abdomen. That can be done on the thigh. That can be done in the groin area. That can be done on the perineum and the vulva. And you can do that and map out the area if you're trying to really find out which nerve may be what's actually affected. So once you kind of think, okay, well, maybe this person has this nerve that's affected, then the way that you would establish a diagnosis is by doing a nerve block or selective nerve block. Um, I like to use ultrasound because I feel you can find anything with an ultrasound. Some people like CT scan. I think it's dangerous. <laughs> so, um, uh, before, and, uh, but any, any real modality would work as long as the person who does them is really consistent at doing them. Um, so this is a video here of an ilioinguinal uh, or iliohypogastric nerve block. And so this probe is placed right at the anterior superior iliac spine, um, which is right in here. And then you will see the muscles of the internal oblique and the transverse abdominis muscle. And by anatomy, you know that the ilioinguinal nerve is actually between the transverse abdominis muscle and the internal oblique. And you can confirm the location of the nerve by using color flow and, and seeing the neurovascular bundle. Uh, and then you can guide a, this is an echo tip needle, a 22 gauge echo tip echo-tip needle right adjacent to that neurovascular bundle and perform uh, a block. And you would want to do is a block of just a very small amount of anesthetic. So I use um, uh, Marcane most of the time. Three cc's is the most I would use because you're trying to minimize the spread and you're really just trying to block that particular nerve. And so what should happen is that if that patient's pain is coming from that nerve, say in this case the ilinguinal nerve, um, it should provide complete relief. There's some articles out there that say, like, oh, a 50% relief is actually diagnostic. I don't think that's true because where's the other 50% of her pain? Why is she still having pain? You I mean you blocked some of her sensory, great, you made her feel better, but that doesn't mean that she has an actual neuralgia. So I feel really, um, you know, I feel like it should be complete relief of pain in order to really make the diagnosis. And the other thing that you want to make sure also is that is the numbness of the nerve that you blocked is it correspond to that nerve's dermatome. So if you did a block and then you find out at the end that she's completely numb from, you know, xiphoid to her leg, then it's not a diagnostic block even though she felt better after that injection. So the numbness should only be in the distribution of that dermatome. And if it's not, then that means you didn't, you didn't block the nerve sufficiently or you didn't block it at all. All right. So once you have figured out with a nerve block, this is what is going on. Let's do treatments now. Uh, this isn't really about a treatment lecture, but there is uh, medical ways of treating neuropathic pain, physical therapy, and nerve blocks is kind of the three things that I go to. And you guys have seen like all these pharmacological uh, presentations today. But these are the common drugs that I may use in someone who has a peripheral nerve uh, injury pain. A gabapentin, pregabalin, uh, there really isn't nothing good for this stuff, and you guys know that. Uh, you, you give them these, these medications and they may not improve at all. I always am very happy when I see someone that does improve because it's not that common for that to happen.
Uh, one, uh, one new thing, uh, well, one thing that I do use is nerve ablations. Uh, and there's really, I look into kind of two different types of nerve ablations, uh, radiofrequency ablation and cryoablation. So cryoablation will freeze the peripheral nerve. Uh, radiofrequency ablation basically burns or coagulates the nerve. Uh, in my institution, I use radiofrequency ablation because that's what we have available. But what I do like about radiofrequency ablation is that you can do sensory stimulation of the nerve prior to actually ablating it. And so in someone, let's say, maybe has ilianguinal uh, neuralgia, I can place the radiofrequency ablation needle next to the ilianguinal nerve, do sensory stimulation, and confirm with the patient that I'm actually stimulating the correct nerve that's reproducing her pain, and then uh, do the ablation. I do these with some anesthesia, because if you do that when they're awake, they won't like you ever again. And they won't come ever and see you again either. I learned that the hard way. No, she, she came back. She did great. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is kind of the, my overview of my treatment algorithm of what, I, of, uh, what I do when I see someone what I think is neuropathic pain. Um, one is that you can start with medications, especially if someone is completely just over, like just has a lot of central sensitization or peripheral sensitization, uh, very allodynic, you can't touch them at all. I like to try them on some medications to bring that down before I do any type of uh, procedure. Uh, but the other thing would be, would be to do a diagnostic nerve block. So if I do a diagnostic nerve block and it didn't help at all, uh, meaning that you didn't have any uh, relief of pain, then I kind of look at, okay, well, what happened? Was the block not diagnostic? Is it maybe another nerve? And so then I repeat the block or I just try a different nerve in that kind of area. And if that doesn't help, then maybe I need to re really rethink that this is not neuropathic pain. There may be something else going on. Um, if the diagnostic nerve block is, uh, if the nerve block is diagnostic, I proceed with doing uh, cortisone injections. I use Kenalog mostly. Um, I usually do a series of three or four, about four to six weeks apart. And if they feel better after that, then that's it, then that's great. Um, if they don't, then we have to think about maybe some other options such as decompression, surgery of the nerve, neurectomy, or ablation. All right, so the second part of my talk is just to go over specific nerves and uh, their presentation. So I feel like I have a lot of patients, I feel like, how come no one can see my pain? Like it's right here, I can pinpoint it, it's right here on my, you know, labia. Just cut it out. All right, so this is case number one. Uh, so this is a, a patient that has uh, right lower quadrant pain, that's her chief complaint. She's 34 years old and she's had it, this pain for about three years. She feels this constant burning pain in the right lower abdomen, which is shown right here. Uh, and also a sharp stabbing pinpoint pain, and it corresponds to the right side of her fan and steel incision that she had when she underwent a C-section. And this, her C-section was also an emergent cesarean section. So with this, we should, if we had these options here, which of the following nerve is affected, what nerve do, would you guys guess? A, all right, so 
So probably iliohypogastric nerve. So the iliohypogastric nerve, I, I kind of bundle it with the ilioinguinal nerve because sometimes they, over, they overlap a lot. But the iliohypogastric nerve is going to be in the lower quadrants, um, and it's going to start right uh, medial to the anterior superior spine. That's where it's going to start doing the sensory innervation. Uh, it's going to go into the inguinal area, the mons, and the lower abdomen. And the ilioinguinal nerve will also be very similar in those areas, but then it will also go into the mons, labia majora, and upper medial thigh as well. And so, and so um, in these patients, you can uh, perform a tenel sign as well. So and many times, uh, especially like in these C-section patients, they're going to say that their corner, their C-section incision is very painful, and then you can just press on the C-section incision on the corner, and they should have a tenel sign from that. Um, and usually, those C-section incisions are going to be um, very low uh, because those nerves are going to come out here this way. But you can also get the tenel signed about two centimeters medial and superior to the anterior superior spine. That is where the um, ilioinguinal nerve will pierce through the transverse abdominis muscle. And you can uh, compress it there uh, and, uh, and have her re-experience her pain. So patients with ilioinguinal uh, neuralgias um, usually will present after some sort of surgery, like a fantasy decision for a C-section in this case, sometimes port incisions from laparoscopy, inguinal hernia repairs, uh, blunt trauma to the abdomen, and even sports injuries like hockey groin syndrome. So this was an anatomy study that they did. Um, they dissected out the ilioinguinal and iliopagastric nerves, um, which are here, iliopagastric nerves. Um, and they measured the distance of the relative location to common incisions that gynecologists make on their patients. And the first incision is the fan and steel incision that we make for C-section. And a fan and steel incision needs to be at least 10 centimeters. You want to get a baby out, but usually going to be like 12 or 13 centimeters long. And what they did was that when they measured the ilioinguinal and iliopagastric nerves at this point in relation to the midline, and this is how far away from the midline they were able to find it. So that means that when we do a normal C-section, we're going to be bound to cut the ilioinguinal nerve. But it's not really more about cutting it. It's also about entrapping it. So when we make our incision on the fascia and we're going to close that incision, we throw a large stitch on the corners of the incisions to bring the fascia back together. And with that corner stitch on, the, on that fascial incision, that's when we can entrap a nerve. And then the other one that gynecologists are the worst enemies here. So the other one here is laparoscopic incision sites. So uh, many times since we're operating the pelvis with laparoscopy, we're making um, port sites really low in these areas. This is a common area that we may make a port site. Uh, and this is really right over the um, ilioinguinal nerve. That's a cadaver dissection just showing here from the midline on this one. I didn't believe the paper, so I had to redo it myself. So that was about seven centimeters, which would have caught it. Okay. And then, and then uh, also sports injuries can cause it, and that's because you can have um, small tears in the external oblique aponeurosis, where the ilioinguinal iliopagastric nerves are going to be piercing out. And so these patients can have pain from repetitive injury um, to these areas. And I think that's how that lady with the zip line accident ended up having her neuralgia. 
Um, and uh, you can form fibrosis in those areas, uh, and they will have a lot of pain with twisting motions or even uh, going from a sitting to standing position or anything engaging their abs. So what, what can we do for this? Uh, well, there is the uh, radiofrequency ablation. That's what I use in my patients. This is a study, a small study, like 30, 30 patients. There's really no good evidence for this, but I have to, that's my other disclosure. Uh, really small case studies. Uh, what they did is they compared a nerve block to just doing a radiofrequency ablation of the ilioinguinal nerve, and this is they found a difference between how long they had pain relief um, I'm pretty much about the same. I think my patients last around 9 to 18 months in pain relief as well with an ablation uh, when nerve blocks don't help. And then the other thing that you can also do is you can perform an ilioinguinal neurectomy. Um, this is a study of patients who had ilioinguinal nerve injury from C-sections, and they uh, found that if they did a surgery and excised out the ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerve, that 50% of patients ended up having no pain, and 25% of patients had mild pain. So, success, yeah. Now, why didn't these patients get better? Uh, you know, I think, you know, pain could be so multifactorial. It, it may have been, uh, they should look into other causes of pain. Okay. So clinical case number two. So this is a patient with uh, dyspruenia, and she's 32 years old. Uh, she's complaining of burning, searing pain in the right labia magus, and she's been treated for vulvodynia for years without any improvement, and pain started after an abdominal hysterectomy, and sometimes the pain radiates to the anterior thigh. So this, this patient drew it very nicely here. You can just look up netters and figure out what nerve injury she had. Anybody want to guess? B, genitofemoral nerve. Okay, this circle didn't translate very well when they fixed these slides. So picture the circle a little bit more this way over here. Okay, so the genitofemoral nerve will go, uh, will innervate the mons, the labia majora, and the anterior medial thigh. In women, it's purely sensory. In males, it, it um, affects the cremaster muscle. And so this, um, Oh, this nerve can be injured, um, mostly by doctors. So we can injure it by hysterectomy or by ilinguinal hernia repair. Or there could be some trauma, even like a psoas abscess. Something related to the psoas may impact the gentofemoral nerve. So when we, as gynecologists, we're trained that when we're doing a hysterectomy, that we should make sure that when we are using self-retaining retractors, those are retractors to open up the abdomen to expose all the organs, that you want to make sure that your retractors are not impinging on the psoas muscle, because on the psoas muscle here uh, is where the gentofemoral nerve is. So these patients have uh, usually have had um, like a very long surgery or complicated surgery where they've had re self-retaining retractors, and then they wake up with pain in their labia, and it's because they've developed a crush injury of their gentofemoral nerve from those retractors. I've also seen uh, patients with uh, chronic appendicitis and scarring of the appendix to the iliopsoas muscle and underlying gentofemoral muscle there. I mean, the gentofemoral nerve. All right, so how do you diagnose it? Uh, like I said, nerve block is the best thing you could do. But one of the things is you have to remember that a lot of these nerves do share very close dermatome, overlapping dermatomes. So the ilioinguinal nerve will also um, 
it may also uh, have, share the same dermatome as the femoral nerve. So I always start with the iliolingual nerve block first, and if they don't improve or show any uh, uh, pain improvement with that, then I would move on to a femoral nerve block. So, like I said, I use ultrasound for my femoral nerve blocks. Um, I, get, I place the ultrasound right here, kind of right where uh, the inguinal canal starts, right at the anterior superior spine, and I'm seeing where the iliacus muscle is, and these are the abdominal wall muscles here. Um, and then you would find the nerve as it's going into the inguinal canal. You can also do a block inside the inguinal canal as well. That's another way of doing it. That one's actually been published, so how to do that one. Uh, but either one works. The other thing to know about the gentofemoral nerve is that there's a gentle branch and a femoral branch, and a lot of the times that branch is up really cephalad, and so if you're trying to do these blocks, you may not end up blocking both branches. There's really no uh, that much uh, studies to show what's the best thing that you can do for purely gentofemoral uh, neuralgia. Um, there's some studies that looked at ablation, but it's kind of just case studies. The biggest uh, case studies have been really for um, neurectomies, uh, either a retroperitoneal approach or an endoscopic or abdominal approach. And, you know, you could throw this one out. 100% resolution pain is probably not true. So 67, 100%, that's what the studies say. All right. Third case. So this is a patient that complains of groin pain. And here they drew it here real nicely for you. Uh, she's 25 years old. She has right groin pain since a forcep-assisted vaginal delivery two years ago. Um, the pain radiates to the medial thigh, right there. And it's uh, reproduced when she's trying to get in and out of bed or in and out of a car, meaning she is adducting, and, uh, abducting her thigh. All right, anybody want to guess what nerve that may be? So that's going to be the obturator nerve. Okay, we'll go into why that is. So the obturator nerve is uh, primi primarily responsible for innervating the adductor muscles. Uh, it's also going to give sensory information to the medial thigh. And then uh, it, it can sometimes spread over a little bit into the groin area, but mostly it's going to be the medial thigh. Um, and you can um, examine this nerve by having the patient do external rotation against pressure to activate the obturator internus muscle and see if they're having pain with that. You can also palpate the nerve on the, on the thigh and on pelvic exam, you can palpate the obturator canal over the obturator internus muscle on a pelvic exam and, and um, have a Tinel sign in that spot as well. Surgery, again, biggest reason to have uh, this type of injury. Um, also, maybe some trauma, obstetrical, vaginal delivery forceps, and uh, obturator hernia, which is rare. So we always want to make sure that when we're doing surgery that we position our patients correctly. I don't know who he is. Uh, and if the patient is positioned where their legs are too externally rotated, it could put stretch on the obturator nerve. And so I end up seeing some patients who said that they developed these symptoms after a vaginal hysterectomy. Vaginal hysterectomy was a long surgery, was four hours, had some complications, and all this time it probably that the patient was in the wrong position and caused a stretch injury to that nerve. 
you can also injure the nerve directly. Uh, this is from a mid-urethral sling for incontinence. So those are the slings that are placed around the mid-urethra that support the urethra uh, for stress incontinence. Um, this is the correct placement of it. So this is a picture of looking down into the pelvis uh, in the retropubic space. Here's the bladder here. Here's the obturator internus muscles here. And so the, this tape here is where a sling would normally fit around the urethra. And if you place the sling out too laterally, then you may injure the obturator nerve. Um, you can also injure it from different types of slings. There's a transobturator approach sling or pelvic meshes and mesh kits that you guys may have heard on the news. Um, all, those, all of those um, mesh kits and slings that access the obturator foramen can possibly uh, injure the obturator nerve. All right, so ultrasound, you can block the obturator nerve as well. That's the adductor brevis, pectineus, adductor longus, right here with a probe on the medial thigh. And then the, the uh, obturator nerve would be in between where all those fascial planes meet. And then you could advance a needle, place it next to the nerve and, and do a very selective nerve block. So obturator neurologists usually just think of them as being pain of the thigh, but if the compression or problem was actually within the obturator canal, you can end up having a nerve trunk type of pain within the obturator canal here, and that would be more of a groin pain. Uh, I'm going to skip this video for time reasons, but uh, so one of the things that you can do is you can uh, surgically decompress the obturator nerve, either in the thigh or, with a or laparoscopically at the obturator canal. Uh, this is a small study from France that found about 87% of patients improved with obturator decompression. All right, case number four. Uh, this is a uh, patient complains of vaginal pain. She's 45 years old uh, with right-sided pain of the vagina, rectum, and perineum. Uh, it radiates to her clitoris. It occurs with sitting and is alleviated by standing. And it started after vaginal surgery with pelvic mesh. You can see how, I like, how much I like pelvic mesh. All right. So what possibly that nerve can be, I'll just give it to you. That's the pudendal nerve. So the pudendal nerve is a nerve that arises from S2, S3, S4, um, and it branches into three branches, the inferior rectal nerve, the perineal branch, and the dorsal nerve to the penis or the clitoris. Um, and it will give sensation to the rectum, perineum, vagina, and clitoris, and also um, uh, causes constriction of the external anal sphincter and urethral sphincters. These patients have very specific uh, symptoms. One is that they can't sit. So their pain is with sitting, but it's a leave of standing. And when you see these patients in your office, they're like one of the few patients that will not sit down when you come into the office, they're just standing, and they're standing really straight up because they don't want to sit down at all. Um, interestingly, though, if they sit on a toilet seat, they feel great. So they can sit on a toilet seat all day, and they're fantastic because when they're sitting on a toilet seat, that is alleviating the pressure from the perineum, and there's no pressure on the actual pudendal nerve, and so they can find that as being very... Uh, re relieving. Um, they may feel a foreign body or a sensation for a body in the vagina or rectum, like a tennis ball, a golf ball, as a kind of common things I hear. Uh, and sometimes it may be associated with persistent sexual arousal. So they'll always feel aroused like they, and um, may have to masturbate. 
Uh, another common thing that they'll say is they'll feel like it's a hot poker in their vagina or a hot poker in their rectum. Uh, when you examine these patients, you can uh, uh, examine the pudendal nerve vaginally by doing tunnel signs. So we, you would uh, palpate the sacrospinous ligament. And if that reproduces your symptoms, it may be because of a pudendal nerve injury. So pudendal neuralgia was first uh, discussed in patients with, who are avid cyclers, and they called it the citrum de cycliste in France. And that's because on these small seats, um, you can end up causing pressure on the pudendal nerve uh, here at the perineum. And over long times, they can end up causing pudendal compression. Um, there are other causes of pudendal neuralgia. That's one. It's sitting here. All right. Uh, yeah, everybody awake now? Vaginal surgery, falls, intercourse. I've had someone with anal vibrators that cause an injury to the pudendal nerve. Um, cycling, sitting athletic training, and then there's some patients that get it and they have absolutely no idea why. So most of the time, pudendal neuralgia is from a nerve-related, but there could be muscle-related problems that cause pudendal nerve symptoms, and that's um, muscle spasms. Uh, and you can think of pudendal neuralgia as being a, a problem of a nerve entrapment, or sometimes it may not be entrapped at all. So we kind of went over this at the beginning, but just to kind of uh, go back over it, so the pudendal nerve here is, is, uh, travels in Alcox Canal, which is a sheath made from the obturator internus muscle. And so if you have dysfunction of the obturator internus muscle, that may be putting stress and compression on the pudendal nerve, which will cause symptoms. Uh, but this patient had a pudendal nerve injury from vaginal mesh. This is a picture of, you know, produced by the company that shows how to place the vaginal mesh. And they show here that you're supposed to anchor the mesh to the sacrospinous ligament. And then, you know, I just pull up the netters and find out what's right there by sacrospinous ligament, and it's the pudendal nerve. So when you place these meshes, sometimes you can end up having an injury to the pudendal nerve. So pudendal neuralgia, uh, the treatments for it is going to be pudendal nerve blocks, physical therapy, medications like we went over. Uh, but when those, those things don't, don't work, they may actually have a nerve entrapment and so they would end up having surgical decompression. So surgical decompression of the pudendal nerve is a, is a surgery that's done uh, transgluteally. So this is a transgluteal patient here. These here are electrodes that we're actually monitoring the activity of the external anal sphincter during the neurolysis of the pudendal nerve so we can monitor its activity. Uh, and we make an incision on the, uh, on, on, the, on the gluteus over the sacrotuberous ligament. And then the, I don't have the rest of the part of the video, but at this point here, what you do is you, you go down to the sacred tuberous ligament and you open up that ligament and then you can expose the pudendal nerve. And which in the plan of the surgery is to remove any adhesions around the nerve and also to relieve any compression from the sacred tuberous ligament and the sacred spinous ligament. Um, this is a patient that had an injury from uh, pelvic mesh. Uh, this here is a vessel loop that is on the pudendal nerve. This is the pudendal nerve here. And then this here is the mesh. And the mesh was attached to the nerve there. And so this patient woke up right after the surgery and was complaining of severe vaginal and rectal pain, um, which, you know, that can be a really common complaint because you just had a surgery in the vagina and the rectum, and so you usually don't really pay much attention to it. Uh, so the surgery actually has pretty good outcomes. About a third of patients are pain-free. A third of patients are improved. 
and a third of patients are unchanged. And it can take about 18 months to actually improve from the surgery. And um, this is a randomized study that was done in France in 2005 that showed a 71% overall improvement. Okay, last, last case. So this is a patient who's complaining of perineal pain. Uh, she's 61 years old with pain at the perineum. Uh, she says that her pain radiates to the lower buttocks and posterior thigh, and she's unable to sit without pain. So here's another patient that can't sit with pain. And this is where she's drawing in here, like right underneath her buttocks. All right, so it's not going to be pudendal because we just talked about that. So the answer is posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. All right, so the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve um, is this area right here, area D. So it goes in the inferior buttocks, the lateral perineum, uh, but also can travel up to the labia majora and to the clitoris as well. And so patients with a, neuro a neuralgia from that nerve may have those symptoms as well. This is uh, the difference between the pudendal nerve and the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. Um, the pudendal nerve usually will travel medial to the ischial tuberosity, while the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve will travel lateral. And then the other difference between these two nerves is that the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve is a cutaneous nerve, so you would think that the symptoms will feel more superficial, while symptoms from pudendal neuralgia will feel deeper. An area where this nerve can get injured is right over the ischial tuberosity. So um, in some patients, that nerve will travel right on the ischial tuberosity right here. And so in someone who doesn't have that much fat padding, I don't know a better way of saying it, uh, and you're sitting for too long, you might injure that nerve. Um, I've had a few patients that had it injured from sitting on these hard benches. So I told them you should probably use this. Okay. And then the, the last thing here is that you can um, block the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve um, with ultrasounds as well. Um, you can place the ultrasound right over the ischial tuberosity and find the little uh, nerve vascular or color Doppler here, um, about a centimeter, two centimeters from the ischial tuberosity at this point, and you can uh, perform the block. What you do in those cases is even less known, um, but you can do a posterior femoral cutaneous neurectomy, which is a surgical procedure that is done right over the ischial tuberosity. Uh, you make an incision and you find the nerve right over the ischial tuberosity and, and you excise it. Okay, well, we've got one minute to spare. All right, so thanks for staying. So, so in summary, pelvic pain may be secondary to peripheral nerve injury, so that could be a possibility. Affected nerves may be identified on physical exam or by nerve block. Uh, and once you identify it, there are some treatment options, but there really is no great big evidence-based medicine to guide you. That's it.